Welcome to uh, Ronan Rescue Cast number four. This is the first interview we're going to do, which is going to be a little bit different, so bear with us. We're going to be interviewing Jason. Jason was a plank holder for the original Fife TSR back in 2003 when we started all of this rescue chaos. Uh, he's been with us through the whole transition through Cam Pro, through the Cam Pro King Reed CKR days, and back into the buyout of Ronan Rescue. So what we're gonna be chatting about today with Jason is the inclusion of the rescue team into the toolbox talk, why and how. So Jason's background, former military, that's how we met, uh, former firefighter, he's definitely got the rescue background, and has spent a bunch of years as pretty high health and safety manager with one of the large cities in Western Canada running a lot of their health and safety. So has a definite different view on some of this stuff than some of your pure rescue addicts have. And it should be an interesting conversation. Here we go. Welcome to the Ronan Rescue Cast. We're pleased to have you. Ronan's comprised of a bunch of slightly deranged individuals that wander the globe in search of that elusive rescue unicorn. We compete, we train, we do rescue work. We're looking for that end-all, be-all system. You know, the one, the one that's going to do everything for you. We haven't found it yet, but we found a bunch of interesting things along the way. And we just wanted to share that with all of you out there. So once again, here we are, rescue cast number four. First interview, here with Jason. How you doing, Jay? Good. So first of all, what I want to talk about is, the topic we're talking today is inclusion of the rescue team in the toolbox talk, the why and the how. So why is this important? Like, why are we even talking about this? Well, after working some time in the world of rescue and then following that up with some time in the world of municipal uh, work, uh, sewer, water, whatever it is, there's a definite gap when it comes to rescue and how we deal with it on a work site. Okay. So I guess that kind of leads us into it. So what's the importance of integrating that rescue plan with the toolbox talk before the work begins? Well, a lot of rescuers just want to get at it. They, they want to get the rescue. But what I found was on a lot of sites, the rescue team was simply sitting idle, sitting over on the far reaches of the job site. Hey man, go sit over there. We'll call you if we need you. However, you know, an effective rescue plan dovetails into the actual work process itself not being a emergency response body, you know, a big part of Ronin is we are involved even before work begins. And we have to be able to see the advantages therein with that. And how can we ensure the effectiveness of our rescue plan, of our rescue team, of the equipment we've deployed based on understanding and being involved before work begins? All right, so I got a question and a point out of this, and I'll bring up the point first. We talk a lot about belaying workers into spaces, even if the spaces are under 10 feet or whatever the fall protection regulation states in your jurisdiction. And a lot of that reason why is so that we don't have to pull a spinal rescue out of a confined space. It allows us to have less rescuers on scene, if the space geographically is difficult, say it's less than 22 inches, we can't get a sked out of there, it becomes difficult to actually package them in there. And so we advocate 
you know, belaying, having our rescue team belay those workers as they climb down. They can get off the line. They don't have to stay on it. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, it is. But a large part of that's actual development of the rescue plan. But if that rescue plan is not communicated, if the guys working that day don't realize that we only have a, for example, a two-man rescue team, so we have one guy able to go in, one guy needs to stay outside, how do they know that they need to be a fall pro? How do they know that when they're in the space, they shouldn't be climbing around in there like a monkey and, and basically exposing themselves to a fall hazard, which will change now the requirements of my rescue team to respond to those types of incidents. Okay, so a quick question out of this then. The rescue team, the rescue team lead, should they have some sort of safety qualification or have some sort of safety background or a little training in order to help mesh in with this tailboard and talk to these folks? Or is, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's important that in the industrial world that the rescue team understands the toolbox talk. And really it comes down to what is the purpose of the toolbox talk? Really, the toolbox talk started as a regulatory requirement where in most jurisdictions, absolutely in BC, it's a requirement for all workers to understand the hazards that they'll be exposed to and the controls required to minimize those hazards. Obviously, there's a, the hazard control hierarchy. That's not the point of this talk, but it's important that they understand. Well, I look at getting hurt in a confined space or even actually this applies to any sort of rescue standby we do, getting hurt is the hazard. Then what do we do if someone gets hurt? What do we do if someone has a medical emergency? That's the control. So it's not just about the work process itself. What happens when Mr. Murphy visits? What's our control for that? To me, that's part of due diligence in the toolbox talk. That's part of what should be talked about, uh, what should be discussed with the workers before work even begins. So kind of long answer, but short now would be, they should have some idea of what a, a toolbox talk is and have some idea of safety in order to be able to talk legitimately about hazards and controls. Absolutely. Understand the importance of a toolbox talk, how it plays in the day's work. And then um, a big important part of that is how does it dovetail into the work process itself? Alrighty. So with this, we're talking about the toolbox talk. What points here are we going to be discussing then? What do you want to discuss about this? Well, after being on the work side, being on the rescue side, I think there's four critical things about the rescue plan that should be discussed in the toolbox talk. Um, the, the goal of that is to make sure everyone understands what's going on as, as we previously, previously discussed. So um, the things we're looking at discuss at to, to discuss is the roles and responsibilities. So when we talk about that, who's doing what, who's expected to do what, everyone should know what everyone needs to do should a rescue be initiated. The next thing is, is how will that rescue be initiated? You know, what is the sign? Um, what is the sound? Those sort of things. Uh, then we're gonna wanna explain to the worker, uh, how will the rescue be conducted? And then finally, is there any limitations to that work process that will ensure an effective rescue. Sometimes the worker may do something that may negatively impact the planned rescue method. All right, so when we talk here about roles and responsibilities, uh, why don't you give me a quick overview of what you're thinking on that? And uh, I'll probably have a couple questions for you. 
Sure. Uh, well, you know, it obviously depends on the size of rescue. Um, uh, you know, incident command system is quite a common thing across, well, globally now. And it can either expand really easily or shrink down small. So the roles may be dependent on the size of rescue we may have, the size of scene we may have. But generally, we're looking for who's going to be the rescue leader, who's going to be the rescuer, Who's going to be the safety person? Maybe for a larger rescue, definitely high angle. We always have an edge person. Uh, who's going to be the first aid person? Uh, and that could be rolled into the rescuer depending on how we're going to access the patient. And then who's going to be standby? Uh, sometimes, depending on rescue teams, they may simply roll into standby from a confined space perspective and use the guy that was currently standby. Or they may decide based on the size of, size of incident that we want to have our rescue team designated standby person. All right, so you're kind of touching on it here, but I just want to make it really clear. So what you're saying is there can be the same person have multiple roles. You could be a standby person in a rigger or a team lead or something like this. Yeah, and it, that's important to realize, you know, uh, just because you hear all these different roles doesn't mean, oh, geez, we, have, we need this huge team. I often hear that with employers when I show them my entry permit and the roles I want filled. They're like, geez, you're telling me I need four different guys. Well, not necessarily. Um, it depends on the needs of that rescue. Uh, a simple external rescue where I'm rescuing the guy from the outside of the space, the same person can be the responsible supervisor for the entry itself, can be the standby for the entry itself, and then when Mr. Murphy visits, can be the rescue leader, can be the rescuer because they're cranking on the winch, can be the first aid person because once that person is out of the space, they will be performing first aid on them. And obviously, they were standby before, they can maintain standby after. But if the incident was to change where the person's not connected, now we need to send a rescuer in. Um, potentially with a spinal, we may need to send two rescuers in. So it all depends on the scenario that we have before us, how many actual people we need to fill those roles. Do we need one person to fill all of them? Or do we need multiple people? And that's something that needs to be discussed, obviously, before work begins. So then this is a vital thought. And just so people out there understand this, this isn't just new to this or just unique to this. Military background, when you used to do your battle procedure, part of it was who's who in the zoo, as we used to call it. Especially when you have attachments and detachments, adds and debts from other units. And in this case, your other units might be your client, might be clients, other subcontractors. You don't know each other. You might have never worked together before. You might have never seen each other before. So being able to sit down, I think, and identify who's doing what and just being able to put a face to a name, if things go bad, just make the situation that much clearer and that much smoother moving forward. Agreed? Absolutely. All right, so and the next part is you're talking about how will the rescue be initiated? I'm going to throw down some thoughts on that. Well, often when an emergency happens, you'll see people run around like chickens with their heads cut off. They don't know what to do, don't know who to call. You know, nothing has been clearly stated to everyone on site. The rescue team may be squared away. They know exactly who's going to be the leader, who's going to be standby, who's going to be the rescuer. But now you have everyone running around. They don't know who to talk to. Who's the person with command and control over that rescue team? And it's important to establish. So once that's done, um, we can then decide how are we going to initiate the rescue plan. Now, it may seem quite simple. 
You may just say, well, we're just going to say help for rescue. Well, then, great. Done. However, sometimes everyone in the rescue team's not actually at that site, um, at the specific confined space entry site. They may be somewhere walking around in the area, but they're not right there. So is it an air horn? Is it a radio? If it is a radio, what is the call sign for the rescue team? How are we going to actually initiate and get the rescue plan rolling? Uh, that way, everyone on site that's involved in that entry will be able to, if they see something wrong, initiate that rescue plan, understand what needs to happen to get that rescue plan on, or sorry, that rescue team on site. All right. So. This brings up a bit of a point, and I mean, you might get some people on site when you talk. Now, you've got this confined space supervisor. We're talking specifically confined space here, and you've got this rescue team leader. Now, there's a lot of cases where that's a separate person. The supervisor may be an employee of the uh, prime who actually owns or is responsible for the space, and the rescue team leader may be, in reality, a subcontractor to that prime. Who takes over? Is the supervisor still responsible for that space once the rescue starts? I mean, are they turning over sole responsibility to that rescue team leader at that point? Or are they working together in some sort of unified command? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the way I look at it, and if we're going to split it up into a responsible supervisor for the work task itself and a rescue leader for the rescue team, it is the responsibility of the responsible supervisor a lot of responsibles there, uh, to ensure that effective rescue is in place. To ensure effective rescue is in place, they're going to make sure there's a rescue team, whether it's one, pe one person or many people. And is their rescue plan effective? This ties back into us discussing the rescue plan in the Toolbox Talk, which is the whole point of this podcast. Um, by hearing that, he can ensure I have an effective rescue plan. However, once the rescue actually initiates, that's the rescue team leader's responsibility to, to carry out that rescue, to successfully and effectively uh, um, extricate the person from that space and care for them. In a way, the responsible supervisor is handing off that responsibility. However, he knows that he can rely on them. It's no different than a company commander of the military whether having is a heavy weapons debt, reconnaissance debt, he's ultimately responsible for that, but early on he made sure he had a team that was capable and trained and competent to carry out that task. This could be much like the fire service too, where your incident commander might be your battalion chief, but the individual running the rescue might be a rescue officer or the rescue captain off of a specific rescue truck where they're running the actual rescue, the incident commander being the battalion chief's responsible for the overall scene and things that go on, but has left the responsibility for that specific rescue task to that officer. Absolutely. Uh, the one small difference with the military and fire, though, is there's a very... Uh, long-standing setup process to ensure who is competent to carry out that rescue, who is competent to carry out that reconnaissance, who is competent to carry out that small team task. The issue we then have with providing rescue standby is we're usually a separate entity uh, coming in to assist another one. So what the Toolbox Talk does is it allows for that to be confirmed. It allows... Um, the rescue team to explain how they're going to do the rescue, 
to explain any issues that may arise, to explain how they're gonna successfully get the person out of that space. So the toolbox talk actually serves as a proving ground for the responsible supervisor to ensure that the rescue team is prepared to carry out the rescue and thereby fulfilling the responsible supervisor's needs to have effective rescue on site. Cool. So the other part that you mentioned was explaining how the worker or the entrant is gonna be rescued. And this is huge. Um, just as a sidebar, we're doing a job this week down in Hamilton. The boys are uh, doing a rescue standby for a worker entering a 22 inch, 25, 22 inch diameter, 25 foot long shaft for a propeller on a boat. They're doing welding in there. And we ran a mock with the workers just to show them we're using wristlets as anklets, you know, sliding them on, dragging them out. And the welder, the first time we did this with them, it was a bit of an eye-opener for him. He was like, you kidding me? And we hauled him out and it was like, no, okay, that, that works, but it's something he had never actually been exposed to. He had never seen it. No one had ever talked to him about it. And this was the first time, and he'd been welding, I mean, 30 years. First time somebody's ever actually done this for him. So, I mean, this is really good, at least to be able to talk about it in the toolbox. So some thoughts on, you know, what are we looking at here for the worker entrance and how they're gonna be rescued? Well, when we explain to the worker or the entrant how they're going to be rescued, uh, and remembering too that although we're focusing a little bit on confined space here, it could be equally applied to high angle rescue, terrestrial, whatever we have. Um, you know, to explain to them, it provides a sense of comfort. So overall, there's three big benefits to this. Um, first of all, again, is the, uh, the worker entrant will be able to focus on their task and not worry about how they're gonna be rescue, rescued. So many times I've heard on site you know, from workers, I have no clue how they're gonna get me out of here. I don't have an idea. Oh well, let's go in. Well, hang on a second. Uh, you know, most regulatory bodies across the world state that a worker needs to know the hazards and the controls. In my opinion, a worker knowing how they're gonna be rescued out of that space is knowing the controls to the hazard of what happens if Mr. Murphy visits? How am I gonna be rescued from this space? So once he or she knows that, they'll be able to relax and focus on the task at hand. Uh, they're not gonna be second guessing themselves and some workers may not guess and some may be quite worried about it to the point where it's actually affecting how they're working, which is a hazard in itself. Uh, secondly, by explaining how we're gonna rescue the worker out of that space, um, he or she's gonna be able to work in a way to allow that rescue to be conducted uh, or to remain effective. So for example, and the, the, the most basic example is if we are stating that this is gonna be a non-entry rescue, meaning that we're gonna rescue the person from outside the space. Think of a typical manhole. Straight up and down, no problems. However, the worker needs to remain in what I call the cone of happiness. The cone of happiness is extending that tripod or davit arm down into the space. Most systems will not allow you to rescue outside 22 and a half degrees from center axis, from either that tripod or that davit arm or, or anything like that. That's usually a manufacturer specification, so 45 degrees either way. 
Now, if that worker is not in the cone of happiness, then I'm not supposed to use that system to extricate them from the space. If they don't stay in that cone of happiness, in addition to staying attached, then my plan for an external or non-entry rescue will quickly become non-effective. I won't be able to rescue that person from the outside. And if we only have one person on site for rescue, we don't have an entry rescuer, very quickly our non-entry rescue plan becomes ineffective. Um, finally, the third point is allowing the entrant to comment on the rescue plan. This rescue plan is there for the worker. And a lot of times the rescue team is not intimate with the details of the space or how the rescue will be, um, how well, how effective it will be based on the space, the characteristics of the space, the pipes, what's in there, that sort of thing. So this will allow the entrant worker to comment on the rescue plan. So a, a classic example would be we have an entry rescue plan and I state that, hey, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna clip on the worker's harness and I'm gonna drag him out underneath the pipes. Great, sounds wonderful. However, the worker realizes, actually man, the pipes are six inches off the ground. Oh, okay, well I'm just gonna come in and drag you over them. Well actually we're dealing with 48 inch pipes and they're actually spaced about four feet apart. So knowing that, and if the rescue team didn't already know that, that has now probably bumped the rescue plan or the rescue team into having to send two people in to navigate that obstacle. If we didn't know that before, then it would happen during the rescue itself. So the knowledge from the worker entrant is critical to ensure the effectiveness of the rescue plan. I think as well with that, with the worker entrant, uh, the feedback of what they're doing. Hey, I'm gouging in here. Hey, I'm welding in here because those are gonna be hazards that could potentially be in the space that the rescue plan may not take into consideration. The rescuers being rescuers are gonna be thinking about what my ropes are doing, how I'm gonna lay over my beaners or whatever. They're not thinking, hey, you know what? There might be you know, something else in this space that the workers brought in as an additional hazard that could negatively affect my tools in that space. So in a toolbox talk, there's multiple opportunities and it's important to keep multiple opportunities for people to understand or know the hazards and understand the controls. So sometimes the rescue team may just be pulled over, hey, we're gonna talk about rescue now, you wanna talk about it? Well, the rescue team would have missed out on the previous points discussed in the toolbox talk. So if the rescue team wasn't there for that, which they should be, because technically being as a, a rescue team entering the space, they should understand the hazard of the controls, this provides another opportunity for the worker to further explain, hey, these are the hazards I'm actually creating as a worker. When I create these hazards, they're hazards that you may be exposed to as a rescue team. Essentially, when you've done rescue as long as us, you realize that rescue's not rescue. Rescue is work. Rescue is our work. That's what we do. So therefore, we need to know the hazards of our work and that input from the, the worker, the entrance critical. So the last point you had kind of mentioned here was, the rescue leader identifies the restrictions or limitations to the work process. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that? Give us a little breakout of what you mean by that. It almost ends up being a bit of a, a, a catch-all or, or a backup. 
And what I mean by that is, let's say that in step three, where I'm explaining to the worker how I'm going to rescue them. So I'm explaining to the worker that, hey, we're set up for a non-entry rescue. I need you to, st well, you will be connected and I'll winch you out of the space. Uh, the, the rescuer, sorry, the worker may not realize that, you know, for that to happen, they need to stay connected. They need to stay in the cone of happiness. So essentially, I am stating limitations to the work process. I'm stating limitations to how the, the entrant needs to conduct their tasks to ensure we have effective rescue. So if he didn't, he or she did not pick it up when I explain how I'm gonna rescue them, this allows me to very specifically say the limitations. So for a non-entry rescue, I would tell the worker, look man, I'm the only rescuer on site. This rescue plan plans for a non-entry external rescue, which means I need a rescue from the outside. For that to happen, you need to stay connected. You need to stay in the cone of happiness within that 45 degrees below the high point or what I'm using to pull you out of the space. In addition, uh, you need to make sure you don't introduce any obstacles that may hinder an external rescue. So just because you're underneath the tripod doesn't mean that a worker may not crawl under a pipe or a welder needs to crawl under the pipe to finish off his last bit of seam. At that moment, a non-entry rescue becomes ineffective. At that moment, we need to have someone else additional outside to provide an uh, entry rescue, to provide entry services. Now, the worker may say, well, I need to crawl under the pipe. Okay, that's fine. Then, then what that means is right now, well, there's just one person on site, we are going to plan for a non-entry rescue, finish all the work you can without crawling under the pipe, then we'll stop, you'll come out, we'll have a break, we'll get another rescuer over, and we'll provide for a small window of entry rescue, thus maintaining the effectiveness of the rescue plan. Going to throw you a bit on the spot on this one. You don't know this question was coming. Um, you'd written an article for the rescue report a year or so ago in regards to this exact topic. You guys are doing a sewer entry underneath the SkyTrain line, and you had the worker had done something, if I remember correctly, in order to affect rescue to make sure that everything worked out at the end. You remember that? Yeah. Can you comment on it? I do. There's two things that we did. One was very proactive, and one was from the beginning. So first of all, when a worker's going down a pipe, and I think this was about a 30-inch pipe, so there's no way you're going to turn the worker around in there. Um, one of the key things from the beginning is the worker had to enter feet first. Yeah, it's a pain. I get that. However, to ensure effective rescue, the, the worker entrant had to be in a certain position to get out of that space. How, let me intervene here. It was a 30-inch pipe. How long was this pipe? Um, approximately, to the best of my recollection, we were going in uh, 10 feet horizontal to the ground. And then we had a 90 degree bend where we went another 10 feet. And then we hit a 25 foot section that went down into the ground at 45 degrees. And then at the bottom of that section was about a 50 foot segment that was horizontal again to the ground. And then at the end of that, it went up 25 feet at 45 degrees. So there was no way that just not only from rescue, but from a work perspective, that the worker would be able to get himself out of that space. It's what we sort of call true entrapment in a confined space. That worker would not be able to get out 
whether in danger, whether it needs assistance, or 100% healthy without assistance from the outside. Right on. So, sorry to intervene. He went in feet first so that you could affect that rescue. And I just wanted to have the listeners out there realize that we're not just talking a straight pull here. This is a bit of a roller coaster ride. Absolutely. And, and one thing uh, besides going in feet first was we needed to ensure the effectiveness of this rescue plan. And it went beyond the toolbox talk. I have never seen a, a mock-up, a training site that properly represented the space we're going into. So our opportunity was actually going in. So on top of the toolbox talk, on top of you know, the points we covered, roles and responsibilities, how the rescue plan will be initiated, explain to the worker how we're going to get them out and any limitations, obviously in this one stay connected, as the entrant went in, about every five to 10 feet, somewhere there, the entrant stopped, laid on his side, and we did a mini rescue. We pulled them out. The first entrant going in was actually rescue trained as well. So he had the perspective of what we would have as a rescuer. He's looking for where's the rope getting hung up? If I'm in this position, can I be rescued? What's going on? So for example, after the entrant went past the first 90 degree, we realized we need tiger tails. Uh, tiger tail is something we use for cameras in a sewer system. And what does it provides a smooth surface over a 90 degree corner to allow us to pull our cables for the camera. There's no reason we can't use that for rope. Inside this space, we or inside this pipe, we had coal tar causing the rope to act um, in a jerk fashion where we catch, we'd pull enough force and it would jerk and then we'd catch again. So by doing these little rescues internally while he's getting to a space where he needs to conduct the work, we ensured the effectiveness of the rescue plan. Around that 90 degree edge, he had to come out, we introduced the tiger tail and then we were allowed to carry on. And he did that all the way down to where his work site was in the pipe, where he had to repair a small hole in the pipe. So we actively ensured that our rescue plan was going to be effective. Right on. So that's pretty much the end of this one. I want to thank Jason for his input and his thoughts on this topic. And when you're out there and you're doing your rescues and you're doing your rescue standbys, I think you can understand the importance of being part of that toolbox talk, making sure everybody knows who's who in the zoo and what each person's doing, both the workers that could interrupt the rescue and the rescuers, stuff that is going to help with the worker, how it's going to be initiated, you know, the benefits of it for the worker, the uh, hiccups that might occur, you know, the different things the worker may have to do inside. So, Jay, thank you very much for spending some time with us tonight. Thanks for having me. All right. We will uh, talk to you all later.